visualize. What does worship mean? Worship has an inner and outer dimension. What is done inwardly leads to what is done outwardly, very similar to what James Harper was mentioning in the call to worship this morning. The inner eye, so to speak. If the eye is good, well, then the activity of the life will be good. There's this inner dimension and this outer dimension. And so beginning with this inner dimension of worship, we could say it this way, and listen carefully. Inner worship is the heart's affection for something or someone that is given the right to determine one's significance, purpose, and security. I'll read it again. The inner worship is the heart's affection for something or someone that is given the right to determine one's significance, purpose, and security. The thing that I give my heart's affection to is the thing that I think will provide for me significance in this life. It'll provide for me something of purpose. It'll define my actions for me. It'll determine what I should do in the situations that I run into. This is where worship begins. It, were, it begins on the level of the heart. It's the, my heart's adoration for the thing that is going to provide me significance, purpose, and even security. I trust in that thing for my sense of security in this world. And so the question is, even for us, what do we worship? The prostitute Babylon, oh, she is going to say, I will bring you stuff. Stuff will satisfy your hearts. With all her pleasures, with all her stuff, she comes saying, let stuff be the thing that is most important to you. That if I got stuff, then I feel significant. If I got stuff, well, then I, I, I'm secure. If I got stuff, well, hey, now, now I have purpose and standing in this life. Folks, it's important for us to understand that worship begins at the level of the heart because it's then the inward beliefs of our heart that lead to our outward behaviors. If you really want to know what you worship, evaluate your life. Evaluate the activity of your life. Just as James was saying earlier, what, what do you give your time ultimately to? What do you give your energy ultimately to? What do you give your hopes and dreams ultimately to? What determines that for you? And what determines that for you will be the thing that sits on the throne of your heart. It will be the object of your worship. This is what worship is. When we talk about worship, it's that ultimate thing that you think will provide for you some sort of significance, purpose, and security in this life. Here's the good news for us. Look what your actions this morning are saying. For those online, your actions this morning, as you're listening into this, are demonstrating something. It's demonstrating the fact that your activity is revealing the nature of your heart, that you're saying, I value Jesus. I want Jesus to sit on the throne of my life. I want Jesus to be the one who determines my significance and my purpose and my security.
I want him to be the one. So I want to gather again with God's people. I want to sing praises that will remind me of this truth that he alone is what my heart so desperately needs. For you to be here this morning is actually demonstrating a level of worship in Jesus. But the text here, again, it raises a unique point about worship, and that is our hearts can be all over the place. By the time you walk out of this place, your heart can be in a total different place, right? Our hearts can be fickle, it can be duplicitous, it can uh, be somehow quickly given to the next thing. So from the context that we see here, chapter 18 to chapter 19, we're watching this great contrast take place between the counterfeit god of Babylon and the true god. Remember last week, we saw this prostitute, Babylon, riding on the beast. She's representing the flourishing economic system that provided endless sensual pleasures and luxurious living. She was all about self-aggrandizement. She was all about her own name. And yet, by the end of chapter 18, the beast has turned on her, and she has become, as the text says in 18 verse 21, She's like a millstone tossed into the sea. A big boulder that's tossed into the sea. She comes falling down and falling down quick. Fallen, fallen is Babylon. Don't we know Babylon in this Western world? Don't we know the prostitute? Don't we know the lies and the marketing strategies? Here's the things that you need in order to be happy in this life. Here's the things you need in order to be secure in this life. This constant, constant kind of echo in our heads calling us to find significance in the things of this life. We know Babylon all too well in this Western world. It's why Jesus then even would warn us earlier in the gospel accounts. Remember the parable of the rich fool, who's like, I'm just going to build a bigger bar, bring in all my goods, and I'm going to sit back, eat, drink, and be merry. And God shows up on the scene saying, you're a fool to do that. You're a fool to live for stuff. Why? Because tonight your soul has been required of you. Or the parable of the sower. Do you remember that? Jesus will talk about how a sower goes out to plant seed. And as he's planting seed, the picture is that of the gospel news. It's the gospel truth being cast out onto the, onto the soil of people's hearts. And, and some of that seed, as the parable goes on to say, falls on stony ground. And Jesus describes that stony ground where the seed really can't take root and eventually dies, and it eventually dies because of the deceitful wealth of the world. If you just have this stuff, you'll be good. You don't need Jesus. <laughs> or, even as we saw this morning, Matthew 6, Jesus will say, don't lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust corrupts and where thieves break in and steal. Don't lay up. Don't, don't give your heart to that stuff. It can't satisfy. It will come falling down as Babylon was seen to fall in chapter 18. But don't we know the lure of this stuff? You need stuff to be happy. But that's only what precedes chapter 19. Also notice at the end of the text that we just read, verses 10 and following. John listens in to this eruption of heaven, 
But as this angel now comes to John, and it's the strangest thing because it comes out of nowhere seemingly. John, you've just witnessed something of all of heaven erupting in praise and honor and worship. You've seen all the glory of the risen lamb in these visions. And yet in this moment where an angel comes to him, what does he do? He falls on his knee to worship the angel. And the angel's like, dude, don't do that. Don't worship me. Have you not been following the story? People who worship anything other than God end up in a bad place. Fallen, fallen is Babylon. She's destroyed. You see, don't we know that we can make good things God things? Here's a messenger of heaven, glorious as he is, right? And what does John quickly do? He quickly begins to make this good thing, a messenger who's come to him, a God thing. He bows down to it. We can do the exact same thing. Whether it's the allurements of Babylon and all her sensual pleasures that she offers us, or whether it's even good things, family, church, Religious duty, right? Those are good things. Good things can become God things. We can bend the knee and say, this is the main thing. This is the ultimate thing. All this good stuff is truly what will satisfy my heart and life. And the angel has to correct John and say, no, no, no. Worship who? God. God. In the, in, the, in the mess of all of this, worship God. When your heart is pulled in all these different, worship God. So then, even at the end of chapter 10, we have this strange phrase, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That's like, what? <laughs> repeat, like, repeat, what in the world is this phrase? Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And there's a lot of debate here, but I think the idea is simply this. It's the testimony, the words and witness of Jesus are what truly bring satisfaction to the heart in in a sense that when we give testimony to who he is, it's his power and, and, and grace and mercy that shows up again to meet us until one day finally in glory we see, as chapter 19 says, just this beautiful marriage feast. It all comes to this climactic moment. It's this future prophetic reality where as we set our hearts on the testimony of Christ, yes, one day we will know him. One day we will be with him. Don't set your heart. Don't worship these other lesser things. Worship God. Keep your heart set upon God for the testimony of Jesus. The truth of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. To align your heart with Jesus is to see Jesus be faithful to you through all the temptations that you will face until one day you finally sit at his table. You see? Worship God. So whether it's before chapter 19 or whether it's at the end of chapter 19, there is this call to worship God. So in the midst of all the temptations that we face in this world, amidst all the pressures that we face in this world, how do we guard our heart in worshiping 
or how do we guard our heart from all the stuff that's there? It's worshiping God. We worship God not by getting to know all the ins and outs of what the world affords us and trying to figure out exactly what it is and how it's to function in life. It's not to mess around with even all the good things and, okay, compartmentalize everything. It's just to worship God. It's the old illustration of, you know, how, how you can know a counterfeit bill. You don't go study the counterfeit bill. You study the real thing. So that when the, the counterfeit comes in, you know, no, I'm not worshiping that. I'm worshiping God. We must guard our hearts by worshiping God, keeping God central in our hearts and lives. So Revelation chapter 19 provides us a bit of worship that we can learn from. First, we're to guard our hearts this way by worshiping the God who brings his enemies finally down. In verse 1, we see heaven erupt in worship. They begin by declaring three characteristics of God. He is the God of salvation. He is the God of glory. He is the God of power. Salvation refers to the point that he truly delivers his people. Once again, how many earthly things do we run to thinking that it will provide us the deliverance that we need? Deliverance from sin, deliverance from shame, deliverance from brokenness, deliverance from backwardness, deliverance from my pain and afflictions. Who ultimately delivers? Revelation 19 is saying it won't be Babylon. It won't be the stuff of this world. Deliverance won't be found in things, in wealth, in systems, and in politics. Salvation belongs to God. God. Then also then glory. Glory belongs to God. Glory is the Old Testament uh, word that refers to weightiness. And as you would think of the scales that weigh, let's say, silver over gold, it's the, the weightiness of the gold that reveals its greater value, its greater glory. When we think of God, even in kind of a, a Babylonian kind of way, a worldly kind of way, oh, God, God is inconsequential. He has no glory. I can use his name. I can say, God damn it, very lightly. Right? People speaking those kind of things in a way that just is, is off the cuff without any kind of true essence. They don't see his weightiness. They don't see his glory. He's rather inconsequential. He's just words that are used to undercut someone else. Yahweh is the God of glory. Glory belongs to him. He's not inconsequential. He's not an afterthought. He is the ultimate thought. He is the very essence and definition of worth and value. All lesser valuable things are just merely, they come from him, but he alone is the greatest weight of glory. He is preeminent. He is incomparable in his glory. And finally, power belongs to God. There is no one and nothing that carries greater authority and the means to back it all up than God. Power belongs to God. But notice in the text, verse 2. Specifically, why? Like, like, why? Why is it that these things belong to him? What is the context from which we see these things actually working out? Well, verse 2, 
for his judgments are just and true, for he has judged the great prostitute a little bit further down and avenged on her the blood of his servants. Again, there's often hesitancy at the idea of God's judgment. But remember from a few weeks ago, God's wrath is right. Remember that God has given us a law. God gives us a law, and he's given us a law that actually promotes human flourishing. He says this is the way that that life as humanity is to be lived. And of course, when we reject that law, we become beastly. That's the whole kind of metaphor of the beast being pictured here in the book of Revelation. When we reject God's law, we become beastly, and we are deserving of wrath. But even then, God provides a way out. God provides mercy. He provides a lamb who comes, lives, and dies for us so that we we don't have to do a bunch of religious activity in order to gain God's approval, but he freely gives it. He says, here's the law. Yes, you failed. Judgment will come, but here's a way out. And for the three cycles of seven that we've seen in Revelation, God gives time, God gives time, God gives time. His mercy continues to be afforded to people. Come, throw yourself at the mercy of the Lamb. Come and repent. Come and worship God. Come and make this right. It's nothing you need to achieve. He's done it all for you. There's mercy given, and God has said now over time, okay, judgment is coming. I've given you mercy. I've shown you the way, and you've rejected me. You've chosen allegiance with Babylon. You've chosen allegiance with the beast. You've chosen allegiance with the false prophet. You've suppressed the truth rather than worshiping God. God's wrath is just and it's true. And all of heaven then, as we see here, is bursting in praise because the great prostitute has been exposed for what she truly is. She's empty, she's worthless, and she's ultimately void of power. And all of heaven is not only erupting because of that, but also because Christians have been murdered along the way. And they now are avenged. Those who cried out earlier in the book of Revelation, how long, O Lord, are now vindicated. They're vindicated in their faithfulness to the Lamb, although they endured great hardship. Oh, think about what is happening in Afghanistan right now. Many Christians face death, the potential of death, right? They face it. But even as they remain faithful to their Lord, even unto death, one day, one day, one day as Revelation 19 is saying, oh, they will be vindicated. They will be proven right in their faithfulness to the Lamb. So then verse 3, once more, they cry out, hallelujah, The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. This is actually a play on words. You know, during the Apostle John's time, Rome was more or less the the modern-day version of Babylon. Even Peter will refer directly uh, to Rome as Babylon. But uh, Rome had a particular saying. The saying is Roma Aeterna, which means forever and ever Rome or Rome, eternal, right? But all of heaven is now saying, 
Rome, Babylon, the only thing that's eternal about you is the smoke of your destruction. Smoke will go up forever and ever. You will never rise again. You will never have sway again. You will never be one who brings you allurements to the world again. You will be done and finally so. But now verse 5, the throne. From the throne comes a voice, praise our God, worship God, all you his servants who fear him, small and great. Oh, God is, he's worthy of praise. That we have once again this call in the middle of this section of scripture, worship God, praise your God, both small and great. You know, I'd played basketball in college, freshman year. I ended up uh, riding the bench for much of the season. We ended up having our greatest uh, victories, you know, through that time, winning state and then going on to nationals and winning some things there. And, and riding the bench, you always kind of felt like, eh, I didn't really like have a whole lot to do with this. It was just kind of like the water boy at times. And you you felt a level of, I, I can't really enjoy the victory. Even in the Christian life for us, there are going to be the great ones who give their life for Christ. There are going to be those who go through unique ups and downs, great deep, dark trials. Oh, they're the great ones. They're great. For others of us, it, it, it's, le it's less suffering, it's less difficulty. There's not great persecution that we, we must fa face, but the point is, whether you've suffered much or you've suffered little, whether you've been kind of playing on the court, giving it all, or you've just been kind of, kind of sidelined doing, doing the background service of handing out the waters to the, to the teammates who are really going at it, whether it's small or great, Who's overcome? Jesus. Right? It's, it's not to weigh, uh, oh, what have I done? When I'm a part of this or I'm not a part of this. No, Jesus has won, and because he's won, he's worthy. And therefore, praise the Lord, both small and great. Whatever role you've played in redemptive history, oh, praise the Lord. Because Jesus has overcome. The true player on the court <laughs> has done it for us. He's achieved it for us. Don't, don't fall into self-pity. Oh, I didn't do much. Or I got saved later in life and didn't have an opportunity to do much for you. No! Small and great, all must praise God. Right? No matter who you are, God is worthy of our praise. Not a matter of what you've done, but what he has done. And therefore, we must guard our hearts from the allurements of the world, even making good things God things. How? By worshiping the God who finally brings his enemies down. All the stuff that pull on our hearts, that vie for a seat on the throne of our hearts, will be exposed one day for what it truly is, empty. But second... We can guard our hearts by worshiping the God who brings his bride safely home. And this is just, this is, this is rich stuff. 
Like this is one of the reasons why I just struggled with the text. It's like, Lord, I can't do justice to this thing. It's too amazing, it's too sweet, it's too glorious for us. Like words to explain it, just do not provide the punch that it deserves. And so verse 6, what does John hear? But he hears another multitude. It is, it is loud. It's kind of like being at a concert where you feel your insides being like jarred. That's why he's saying it's like mighty peals of thunder. I can feel the noise in my inward being. It is this eruption in heaven. And they declare hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. And the word reigns doesn't mean like, oh, now he reigns, but he wasn't reigning while all this bad stuff was happening. No, it's the idea that he always has been reigning, but now his reign is fully realized. There are no rivals to his reign. They're finally done away with. And so it is to say the Lord God Almighty reigns. Haven't you at times wondered who reigns in this world? You got Haiti struggling, right? You got Afghanistan, things going. You got a hurricane coming up the East Coast. You got your own troubles on your little microcosm of life. God, who reigns? You sure you reign? Are you sure? Oh, that's why we have a text like this. That's why we have it. Christian, don't look at the circumstances of life and question. All of life is heading in a direction, and it's heading in a direction where all things will be put to rest and where God will be seen in an unrivaled way, his, his, his reign fully realized in glory. For the Lord God Almighty reigns. Now, with his reign fully realized, it leads to one of then the most prominent and beautiful themes in all of Scripture. Verse 7, let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. Why? Because the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. If you have ever wondered what the storyline of the Bible is all about, it is this. It is this. It's God sending his son to redeem a people from a multitude of fallen and broken humanity so that God might offer this people like a bride to his son, the bridegroom. Scripture will employ the imagery of marriage again and again to describe God's relationship to his people. Ezekiel 16 is one of the most graphic pictures of this. It is God finding this child who's been cast out of the city, left to die, and God comes around and picks her up, and, and he raises her and makes her strong, and, and she becomes beautiful in God's care for her, but then she turns her back on him and goes off and whores herself out with the nations, as the text says. God mourns over her. But the promise is that one day he will be wed to her. Or it's the story of Hosea. Do you know the story of Hosea? Hosea the, the prophet, called by God to marry a prostitute. He marries her. And after he marries her, you begin to see her kind of 
have eyes for outside the home, going back to the streets, eventually getting caught back up in sex trafficking. And there she, one, at one point in the story, she stands on the auction block. She's back in her slavery, back in her brokenness. And God comes to Hosea and says, Hosea, go purchase her off the auction block. And so Hosea is like, I don't, I, don't, I don't get this, God. But sure enough, he goes, he goes, and he buys her off the auction block. And even as the book of Hosea says, he takes her home and is tender to her. He's not angry, he's not bitter, he's not beating her down. No, he's tender to her. And Hosea says, God, what in the world is this all about? And God says, this is how I view my people. They have sought after counterfeit gods. They have given themselves to the sensual pleasures and the stuff of this world again and again. They've put everything else on the throne of their life. And God says, I'm going to purchase them off the auction block of their slavery. And hasn't he done that? In Jesus, the Lamb, the Lamb of God, who bore in himself our sins, that we might come freely to him. He's the one who did the work. He is the one who, who, who suffered the lot for us, who paid the price for us, that we might be purchased off the auction block and taken safely home. This is what God has done for us. This is the picture of this, this marriage, this feast, this celebration. The lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. In other words, church, while we know that Jesus has purchased our, us off the auction block of our sin and slavery, there's still something for us to do. We, we get to prepare for this time. The bride has made herself ready. Verse 8, it says, It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. While there are things for us to do to get ready for that day, what the text is saying, God's going to grant you the great, he's going to grant you the stuff to prepare yourself for the day that will come at this marriage feast of the Lamb. So we have to prepare ourselves, but God will be working with us through that process, right? Freely, get the picture, freely we've been purchased off the auction block. But now, as those who've been saved, who've been redeemed, now we have this journey with God until this day by which we are preparing. Have you ever prepared for a, a wedding before? Oh my goodness. The amount of work and effort and money that goes into that thing, right? In a very similar way, that's the idea. Let's, let's do the preparations for that celebration time. Let's do the work, but know that as you're doing the work, God is working in you to accomplish the things to prepare for that particular feast. Isn't it amazing? So, you know, is it God doing the work or are we doing the work? And the idea is yes. Even as Ephesians 2 would say that we were saved, right, freely. 
faith, through grace alone, Christ alone, we've been saved. But God has prepared works for us to walk in beforehand. He's ordained that we would prepare ourselves in certain ways, that we would be about a certain activity in this life to prepare ourselves for the next. Perhaps you could even boil it down. There is a walk of worship for us in this life. Good works to walk in, right? To prepare us for this particular time and day. Or Philippians 2 would say, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, For it is God who's going to work in you both to do and to will of his good pleasure. In other words, he's going to lead you and guide you as you are doing the work. He's going to strengthen you along the journey to prepare you for this particular wedding celebration. Here's the point from this beautiful text. It's to recognize this. Babylon will never die for you. Do you know that? Babylon will never die for you. If if your career sits on the throne of your life, your career will never die for you. (laughs) Most of the things that we we, we choose to place on the throne of our life, oh, this is going to provide me the significance, and this is going to provide me the purpose, and the security that I need. This, This is it. It'll never die for you. It'll never live for you. It'll give you temporarily what you think you need, and then fallen, fallen is Babylon. It will lead you into the emptiness that Babylon ultimately will be proven to be empty. So, it is all of this that the bride is to stand in great contrast to Babylon the prostitute. The one who's faithfully walked in the way of the Lord versus the one who's just filled with empty promises and pleasures that ultimately are found tasteless. The bride makes herself ready. The bride gives herself to the grace of God through the journey until the final day of this great feast. We are called in a real way to co-labor with God to prepare ourselves for this day. It is the way of worship. Uh, We worship our way, if you will, to the finish line where he will ultimately bring us safely home. Folks, this is how we guard our hearts. Again, we guard our hearts by worshiping our God who brings our enemies down, but ultimately who brings us safely home. Now, just by conclusion, um, verse 9 of chapter 19 says, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Uh, Revelation has seven of these blessing statements. I believe this is the fourth. But the question is, how do I get an invite? How do I I get an invite to this particular feast? How do I get an invite? Well, it's to surrender the throne of your heart to Jesus. 
It's to say, I'm done suppressing the truth. I'm done looking to Babylon, her empty promises. I give myself now to Jesus. And the beauty of it is he'll have you. He's he's paid the price for you to come freely to him, right? And the invitation then, as as we trust in Jesus, is now you get the RSVP. Yep, I'm going. I'm going. With Jesus, I'm going there, right? With Jesus, I am invited. With Jesus, I am blessed. That is how we are invited. We trust in Jesus. We get our hearts on Jesus, or as we've been emphasizing, we worship God. We stop suppressing the truth, say no. We say no to the counterfeit idols, and we say yes to our God. He's the one that we must receive in order to be given the invite to this great marriage supper of the Lamb. So it's simply to humble yourself. When it comes down to it, humble yourself. Humble yourself before the Lord. Receive Him for all that He is, right? And He'll have you. And this, then, will be your story. An invite to the marriage feast of the Lamb. It's all to say, worship God. Keep your eyes on Him. Keep your heart's affection directed toward Him. Don't let all the other stuff clutter the throne of your heart. Let him rule and reign from the place of your heart, the one who who can determine for you your significance in this life, who can provide for you purpose and direction in this life, and who will ultimately provide us safety in bringing us home. Worship God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for how you, uh, how you kind of work through our weaknesses. Um, God, thank you for orchestrating even these moments together where my own heart has felt uh, weak and uh, in some ways thinking, oh, this is not sure this is even enough. Uh, but God, thank you. You work through our weakness. You work through our weakness. Spirit, thank you for your presence among us. And God, may it be that you receive the worship of our lives. Lord, Lord, show us, show us where we have compromised. Show us where perhaps we've given way for other things to really take, take the, the throne of our hearts and lives. Let it be you, let it be you alone. Thank you even this, today as, as you might show us the things that clutter the throne of our heart. Thank you that you have mercy for us, you have grace for us. You're not looking down on us, you're not... You're not scowling at us. You are good to us, and you have mercy afresh for us. So, Lord, I pray that you would refine our worship, give us clarity in worshiping you and you alone. And so, God, refine our hearts, guard our hearts, we pray, until that ultimate day when you bring us safely home. We'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.
from, you know, in particular, the, how you're talking, Dan, about how for generations to come that God will be in control. Uh, I just had this like, vision of him being in control the entire time of history. And, and Abraham, David, and generations and generations. And, um, and so the song I'm going to do is, is called Game of Thrones. And uh, um, you know what?
as we close, I, uh, I do want to just share a few announcements and actually close in praying for Afghanistan. Um, so Larry and Ali in particular. Um, so a few, a few announcements as, as we close. Uh, next Sunday, we'll have a volunteers meeting for the folks uh, interested in helping out with kids ministry. So we'll have lunch provided. That'll be next week as well. The school supplies uh, by next Sunday will be the final uh, day to bring in things that'll all be taken over to Lawton uh, that next Monday. Um, so uh, keep those things in mind. Otherwise, keep your eyes out for the email and other details, conferences coming up and those kind of things. If you'd like to attend those, it'd be fun to be together uh, at those kind of things. Uh, so Larry, would you come and, uh, and pray? And then Allie as well, and I'll close. I'm not going to read the whole text to you, but um, I kind of paraphrase through this. Um, and Dan asked me to pray for you know those who are being separated from their homes and the, those who are being wayward, and, you know, not their choice, but being you know virtually made a refugee by war in the situation in Haiti with the storms and all. You know, I was thinking of um, and you can read this at home in Deuteronomy um, 17 and 22. Um, Deuteronomy, right. So in in that particular text, God is, you know, just to set the stage, Moses is um, giving God the, uh, you know, he brought the tablets down, and, you know, they broke, so God says, let's do it again. He sets them all up again. He says, make a box this time. Let's get it right. So he goes up, and he brings the tablets, you know, and he gets them ready to come down. And then God pours out his heart in what maybe one of the highest forms of Hebrew I read a number of years ago in all the Old Testament. And his heart is for, for the broken in the world. He says, um, you know, his people, what is really important to him? What is really important to God? So what's important to God? His love and care for those who don't have a place to live. You know, he talks about the orphan, the widow. But then he talks about, when you're reading Deuteronomy, the sojourner, the person who was doesn't have nowhere to go. They were just laid out, you know. And, you know, suddenly they're just by themselves. Um, their food, their clothing, you know, just hard and horrible state, like a lot of people right now as we speak are. So, um, you know, it's, it, the Bible translates it. Um, <coughs> yes, he is sojourner, but it's the homeless. Those are just put out. So, uh, I just like to pray for them this morning. Father, your love and care is evident in your world and your word. Through your common grace, you provide for all living creatures, for those who belong to you. You charge with carrying out and caring for the marginalized in our world. So we pray that you would break our hearts for what breaks yours, especially those who have been displaced recently through um, in Afghanistan and Haiti, through war and through uh, natural disaster. Through both war and, and natural disaster, they've been broken, separated, and torn up, Lord. So we pray protection for them, Lord. But we pray especially um, for those you've sent to them, those that you've sent to, to help them, Lord. Your people who've come, who've come upon them by their side and done that. We pray especially for those for protection in Afghanistan, who are, as David said earlier, who are just 
you know, have, have really given their lives for the gospel. So Lord, we pray for them. Lord, we pray for those people who are working on their behalf. Be with them and put a hedge of protection around them. Yeah. I pray that you would, would have your angels guard over them and those they serve. And still in the need of everyone, even, even us, the need to help those who are poor, marginalized, and especially them, those who are separated from, from their families, from their homes, and, and just put out with no resources and no, no means to even survive. So Lord, we pray for them and we just lift them up to you and we ask that you would be with them, guide them, and we know your heart is for, for those people, so we pray that our hearts would be there also. And in Jesus' name. I just pray for um, our American citizens who are stuck there, many of them 
care providers and missionaries who can't get out. God, I pray those same blessings on them, those support and protection. Um, and for our military, and God, I just pray that you would just work a peaceful miracle in that land. Um, and if that's not what you have on tap for them, that, that our fellow brothers and sisters would just have peace in the face of horrible adversity. And we lift them up. And I'm so encouraged by them. Um, and we pray that you would just bless them, keep them safe, and make them feel like you're surrounding them. In Jesus' name, so Lord, finally, we just um, we thank you for this morning. God, we ask uh, again your blessing upon uh, Afghanistan and the situation that is there. Uh, Lord, for those who will suffer during this season, let it be done in a way in which you receive glory mm. and honor, even through great suffering. Uh, Lord, I pray specifically for the women and for the children uh, who may suffer great abuses. Uh, let it be, Lord, that you would provide a level of healing uh, to their wounds. Uh, God, that their, their eyes would be lifted to the God of all mercies and to the God of all comforts. So utilize this very difficult time in order that worship might arise to you, that your faithfulness uh, might be seen and known, and that our hearts might relish the time when you will come again and you will make all things new. So God, we look forward to that day. We trust in you.